If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I am Brandon Seck. I'm William Sarada. And today we have two topics we're uh, hitting you with today. Uh, Both of these things have come up in the last uh, week or so in the national art press and we are paying attention to them too. the first thing we're going to talk about is Jeff Koons' decision to send work to the moon. Uh, of course, it's Jeff Koons, and of course, he's sending work to the moon. And of course, there's also an NFT component to it. So that's the first part of our podcast. And then uh, after a break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about um, this Andy Warhol uh, copyright case that's Uh, going to be heard by the Supreme Court. Uh, This has been moving through the court system for the past five-ish years, and it uh, has been appealed, and that appeal is going to the Supreme Court now. Um, But first, we're going to start with the Jeff Koontz space race. Uh, So, like I said, of course it's Jeff Koontz, of course it's space, of course it involves NFTs, Jeff Koons announced that he is going to send artwork to the moon on uh, William. It's on one of like the private space flights, right? Yeah. So this NFT project com- consists of um, a digital work with a corresponding sculpture. The sculpture being launched into space from the Kennedy Space Center on a fully autonomous mission. The project is presented with the project's initiators, Patrick Colangelo of NF Moon and Chantel Bayer of Four Space. That's the number four, and then the word space. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a pun there. The moon as a phrase being invoked in the NFT and the crypto space, meaning that um, you ideally buy one of these digital products anticipating that it will quote-unquote go to the moon, meaning that it will exponentially increase in price. Uh, so, you know, this is this has just been sort of like parlance for a while that these crypto assets are viable investments because you get a massive return in virtually no time. Um, that's, that's the goal anyways. Um, and so... Jeff Koons, in his first NFT project, mind you, is kind of like literally doing that. Um, yeah, I I don't know. Me and myself and Jessica Fuentes, our news editor, wrote some notes about this uh, before the podcast. Um, and we were just both kind of confused as to like, I don't know, uh, what is the upside of 
planting an object on the moon. Um, and it's also like not happened before, not in this context, not in this way. Well, it hasn't happened in like a, a saleable way, which of course, like leave it to Jeff Koons to find a way to send something to the moon and still have a saleable component to it. Um, like, there's there's a lot of superlatives being thrown around with this. Like, this is the first ever authorized artworks to be placed on the surface of the moon. Well, I, is that because it's launching from, like, the Space Center? So technically, I guess NASA's letting it happen. Like, there's a big question mark as to who is actually, quote-unquote, authorizing this art go to the moon. Um, and, of course, that claim in and of itself may not even be true there was there was an artist whose uh work was brought up on um a a previous mission uh, on the apollo 15 mission uh, the the piece you can find information about it it's called fallen astronaut and it's like a little um commemorative piece uh dedicated to the astronauts and cosmonauts who died in space missions um so there is art on the moon. I mean, the whole idea of talking about art on the moon in and of itself is kind of absurd because it's almost just a big, it's a big race to nothing. Like we're not living on the moon. No one's ever going to physically see this work. It's completely symbolic at this point. Yeah. The level of frivolity in a project like this is so high that it's, you know, it's very like Jeff Koons um, headline grabbing antics. Uh, so I don't know. It, for me, that just convalesces into sort of head scratching questions like why? Um, I <laughs> We're sort of living in a interesting phase of private development of space exploration. So like the face of... Um, space exploration, space finance, all that stuff is changing very rapidly. Given over the last 60 years, there's been this kind of open question as to like, you know, the U.S. pioneered some major components of space travel. When are we going to like make good on that progress and actually keep doing that? And the short answer is that, um, you know, tech billionaires will kind of finish the job for them. Um and I mean, none of this being a, a a qualitative statement at all, just trying to give a little context around, like, what does it mean for there to be one of Jeff Koons's sculptures on the moon? To me, I don't want to be too cynical, but there's there's an aspect of me that's just like, this is how we're using our time and our resources at this point. Like... It, the the fact that it, there is, the fact that it's not even just a symbolic you know, machismo thing and that there is a saleable component to me. I, I, I don't want to say it makes it worse, but maybe it makes it worse. Uh, one of the, one of the articles that, uh, that talked about this, uh, was an article in the art newspaper, which is a, a UK based publication. And I love kind of seemingly out of nowhere at the, the very last line of their article was, a female artist has yet to express significant interest in sending a work of art to the moon, which is, I, I to my knowledge, is true. But I also just love the complete kind of non sequitur at the end to be this dig <laughs> on all of the all of the machismo dudes who are like, I'm gonna get my art on the moon, 
and then it'll be there forever, you know? Yeah, it's like it's interest it's an interesting impulse to to conceptualize a project like this because there's such an equilateral un unequilateral uh like valence of priorities and importance Brandon kind of to your point that it's like oh yeah is this how we're gonna is this what we're gonna spend um jet fuel money on is like sending an inert object to the moon that no one can look at um yeah I don't know um well I guess also maybe I should just mention that um in looking into this it's kind of hard to find visuals about the project. There is a promotional video, but it's kind of just Jeff Koons standing in front of a um, <laughs> a backdrop of like a yellow orb. And, and part of that is that given that this is an NFT project, a lot of just the whole experience is going to live on, you guessed it, Discord. Um, the, the like messaging application that teenage boys use to, to share world of uh world of warcraft tips or whatever i wouldn't really know um so it's it's like the project sounds hypey it sounds vaguely interesting um but even so there's not a lot of meat around what it's what it looks like what it's going to be um at least not like on the public facing component um, NFT projects. I've, I, I guess I should take back the discord dig. I have used discord here and there. <laughs> um, I've even been on a couple NFT launches, just kind of doing research more or less. Um, and part of the whole deal is that there's going to be not a paywall, but just some kind of registry wall that you have to get through in order to get into the chat room to see what all of the fans, the participants, the collectors of these NFTs, what are they talking about? What are they into? What's going on with this whole community? So I guess that's what I mean when I say like, it's sort of from the public aspect, like the public facing component of this project, you can't really tell what it is. Um, and it's that's, a very real barrier to entry. And I mean, yeah. NFTs already have a barrier to entry, but then to have to sign up to be, I mean, it's part of just the whole idea of NFTs of like, you're part of an exclusive club who's in the know by signing up and being able to talk about it. And I don't even know if we have any indication of how many of these are going to be available. We de- I definitely don't know what they're going to look like. Well, Brandon, I mean, all of the things you just listed about the sort of opaqueness, the barriers to entry for NFT projects, um, a layperson might tell you that all of those things apply to the art world as well. Um, and it's just, which is really interesting because it's, uh, NFTs still don't look anything like uh, what you see in a fine art gallery for the most part, but like structurally, they kind of, still do similar things or they employ similar strategies it's it's increasingly difficult to explain to somebody like oh this is an nft it's not art and they're like why not (laughs) and then you say well it's hard to collect it's really expensive it you know it uh and they're like well what what's the difference um i i agree with that william i think it's it's a 
it's kind of a six to one, half a dozen to the other. Like it's the same, same difference, two worlds. And now the crypto and the art one is, are, are connecting. And frankly, I'm surprised Damien Hurst Hurst has already done NFTs. Jeff Koons hasn't yet. So of course he's doing it with this big launch. And I mean, we've talked about it for 10 minutes now. So he is getting press for it. Like it's accomplishing its goal. Um, which if there's one thing he is good at, it is advertising and accomplishing his goal of getting his name out there. Um, there is another component of this, which is a do good, feel good component that some of the, uh, proceeds from the sales are going to go to doctors without borders. Um, good cause also a little punny, (laughs) the fact that it's something being sent to the moon and it's doctors without borders. Um, Uh, I feel like we'd be remiss. We're not going to get deep into it, but there are a ton of great artists both in and out of Texas working now uh, or artists who have already uh, passed away, but who have worked in the past with the idea of space travel and the landscape of the moon and everything like that. People like Luis Nevelson, Robert Rauschenberg, um, there are is a strong Texas contingent of these artists just because we are located in a space state. Um, people like Adam Fung, who's working right now, people like Dario Robledo. Um, Dario has done so much work around space travel and the moon and Voyager and the golden records and the sound of heartbeats. And that was kind of a main thrust of his work for a very long time. Um, People like Esther Pearl Watson, who's uh, blending space travel but UFOs. There's a lot of UFO connection as well. Um, The Moody Center for the Arts in Houston a couple years ago did a show on the, I believe it was the 50th anniversary of uh, one of the Apollo missions. Um, And that was kind of in recognition that the space race was almost kicked off by JFK in a speech at Rice University. So Texas has this very rich history of space art that uh, isn't necessarily falling into the uh, self-promotion game that's going on with this NFT project, but is real art that is looking at what's out there. And with that, we're going to take a quick break to listen to a word from our sponsor, And we'll be right back after that. This week's podcast is sponsored in part by SFAI and Little Globe, which are two Santa Fe-based arts nonprofits committed to collaboration as a way to support artists, creative practitioners, and culture bearers. Santa Fe Stories from Inside and Out are Little Globe TV, or LGTV, episodes and SFAI Tilt podcasts that highlight the histories and experiences of the people who make Santa Fe a diverse, creative place to live and work. Stay tuned for the upcoming episodes, LGTV on April 13th and Tilt on April 22nd. Learn more at littleglobe.org. That's L-I-T-T-L-E-G-L-O-B-E, littleglobe.org. And we are back with uh, topic number two this week, which is a big one. Uh, this is 
the point in the podcast where I will encourage you, listener, to take a look at the related reading links that are in this post on Glass Tire. Uh, there are some really interesting op-ed pieces and just some interesting pieces in general about this whole situation around the Andy Warhol, Lynn Goldsmith uh, court cases that have been popping through the courts. Um, why we're talking about it right now is that uh, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear this case uh, that's the Andy Warhol Foundation estate versus Lynn Goldsmith, who's a photographer. So basically what happened or the meat of this case is Lynn Goldsmith photographed Prince, the singer, um, in about, I think it was 1981. And then in 1984, uh, Andy Warhol uh, licensed uh, one of Lynn Goldsmith's photographs for an illustration for Vanity Fair. So Vanity Fair published an article about Prince uh, along with Andy Warhol's illustration, uh, which pulled on Goldsmith's photograph, as Andy Warhol often did, with silk screens and kind of layered processes and appropriation. So uh, then, after Prince died in 2016, uh, Vanity Fair uh, published other pieces that Warhol had done uh, using her photograph, uh, using Goldsmith's photograph, and Lynn Goldsmith all of a sudden was like, I didn't know there were other images that used my photograph or other pieces that used my photograph. So the Warhol estate, the Warhol Foundation, uh, went ahead and uh, kind of tried to get in under the wire. And instead of having Goldsmith sue them, the Warhol Foundation brought a case against her uh, and was essentially looking for a court to declare that the works uh, weren't... uh, infringing on goldsmith's copyright the the basis for something like this is the idea that an artist if they use someone else's image or idea or work that they are transforming that work enough so that it has a new meaning or so that it's uh it's not necessarily just a direct copy of the other artist's work so that first court uh that judge found that, yes, Andy Warhol was just fine in his use of it. Goldsmith appealed, and in the appellate court ruling, which came out in 2021, uh, it was in favor of Lynn Goldsmith, basically saying that Andy Warhol had not transformed the image enough. So now, of course, the Warhol Foundation wants it to go in their favor. They appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, yes, we'll hear the case. So this isn't resolved yet because the Supreme Court will ultimately issue the final decision about it. But whichever way the Supreme Court ends up going, I personally think, and William, I want to hear from you, I think this is going to have huge effects on artists being able to appropriate existing things into their work. Um, Warhol has long kind of been an example of how, uh, how transformative use could be applied with things like his Campbell's soup cans. Um, He copied the images basically of those soup can labels and all he did was paint them and make them a little bigger. He made replicas of Brillo boxes out of silkscreen and wood. Um, He took photographs, uh, this Prince photograph or the uh, Marilyn Monroe photograph, and he turned them into paintings and silkscreens. So this is kind of taking the 
one of the appropriation godfathers and putting him up to the light and seeing if it stands up or not. So to me, just to me, that lends itself to huge implications with whatever the court decides. Yeah, it's so, um, I don't know if ironic is the right word. It's so unfortunate that the Andy Warhol Foundation um, made the first strike and they, they took Lynn Goldsmith to court for the purpose of getting a, like you said, Brandon, a declaration from the court in writing that Andy Warhol's work was transformative enough to warrant it as fair use, um, to warrant his use of Lynn Goldsmith's photo as being fair use. And here we are uh, with bated breath, biting our nails, wondering if, right, like one of the biggest symbols of postmodernism, of appropriation in art, will be struck down posthumously so he's not around to see uh, his legacy shift and change. But um, yeah, it's reading about this, it's so difficult to find anyone uh, kind of to comment on what it is for a work of art to be transformative. So maybe this is a good time to jump in and say uh, the Supreme Court in a previous case had said that a work is transformative if it, quote, adds something new with a further purpose or different character, altering the first with a new expression, meaning, or message. Which, <laughs> of course, is just as vague as, <laughs> you know, if it adds something new, like by that by that yardstick, this uh, Warhol portrait of Prince added something new by adding color to a black and white photo. So that's part of it, or altering it with a new expression. You know, it imbued it with a new feeling because it imbued it with new color. Um, there was an example given of like, if you copy a logo verbatim, but you put it in a different setting a different context, um, you know, you can very quickly, that's ample room for like satire or political commentary. You know, those would be good examples of transformative use, um, even while maintaining entirely the integrity of the original image. That's not exactly what happened here. Um, as you said, Brandon, like the original photographs are black and white. These photos have like color the the sort of levels the contrast is changed um but the image is someone else's photograph that someone else took yeah william what do you think about the argument uh one of the articles i was reading kind of talks about the the fact that you know the fact that they could be recognizably warhols almost means that he has transformed the photo like if you saw that photo it wouldn't be a warhol and then if you see the painting that he made it is a warhol what do you think about the argument that that's valid transformative use because the devil's advocate to that argument is that any big name artist who has a style could take anything and just slap their own, you know, in Warhol's case, slap a silk screen and a few colors onto it and boom, it's his, that's transformative. So is, what do you think of that argument? I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like 
we're living through what the the logical legal conclusion of Warhol's pioneering pioneering style, um, and we don't know what's on the other side. Uh, my initial response to that argument that Warhol's work is transformatively his style, uh, full stop, um, is that like you know that works. Can, that's convenient for artists who are really recognizable and really big names. Um, but Andy Warhol is an interesting example because a lot of his work being so appropriative, um, if you if you sort of do a thought experiment where like, okay, what if there's a, a world wherein somebody, what if there's a parallel universe, somebody makes work that looks like Andy Warhol's, not very hard, not impossible by any means, but maybe Andy Warhol was never born or he doesn't exist. Andy Warhol became popular. His style became recognizable. So doing simple edits to a photo, being transformative, fair use, um, only benefits one artist. If somebody else <laughs> did the same thing to a Prince image um, and they weren't super famous, then they would have less recourse for appropriating anything in their work and i mean i don't know the uh, one of the quickest ways i can respond to that question brandon is that i have made appropriation art um it was a major component of my work in art school so i have a soft heart for <laughs> these laws being flexible and kind of accommodating um Obviously, if I was a world-class photographer, I might feel a little different about my stuff being constantly ripped and posted everywhere and anywhere, or having artists of all skill levels, of all career types, um, reproducing my work, uh, even if they weren't selling it. You know, I, I might feel differently about that, but kind of the way I navigate media is is so appropriative it's hard for me to think about that the power dynamic is also kind of important which makes it difficult i would feel like to actually establish an overarching law that seems fair in some regard like if if uh Urban Outfitters took Lynn Goldsmith's photo and turned it into a poster or turned it into print for a pair of shorts. Like, that's obvious. It's like a big corporation, even though Lynn Goldsmith is a known photographer. Like, that case would almost seem pretty clear cut. Or if it were Urban Outfitters doing that to a photographer who isn't well known, who posted their pics on Flickr, you know, and it was a company just stealing. But when you get into artists stealing from other artists. I think of people even like Sherry Levine's after Walker Evans uh, series of photographs or people like Elaine Sturdivant who like made art that was deliberately designed to replicate other people's art. And a lot of, a lot of the people who she replicated, uh, they got a kick out of it and they were supportive of it, but still what's, Where's the transformative aspect there would be my question. If she's doing screen prints of Warhol's flowers and they are art objects 
that are like there isn't a visual transformative element. Even like Warhol versus uh, Goldsmith, there's a visual transformative element where you look at the two and they look different. You know, just physically, they look different. It's not like a reproduction of a black and white photo versus a complete carbon copy of an artist's work. Paint on canvas versus paint on canvas. Size, everything's the same. But the transformative aspect is a conceptual bent of I'm going to create a body of work that isn't my own, but that is my own because I'm doing it because they're copies. You know, this conceptual it's so hard for, I mean, even art people sometimes to understand that, that I can't imagine trying to go in front of judges who aren't used to dealing with, what's the best word, creative types and their whims. <laughs> yeah, that was like a constant through line of the news reporting on this whole uh, litigation, which is that in some instances, the judges weighing in on artistic decisions as, and they have to, they have to decide if something is transformative or if it is infringing on a copyright. They like, they, it is their job to sit there and suss these things out. But because art is so subjective and because appropriate discussing appropriation can delve very quickly into conceptual territory. Sometimes the judges um deliberations delve into like art criticism um and that's like not that's not what they're supposed to be doing i mean i guess they can they can criticize the art while they sift through the law but um that's but uh criticizing whether the work is like successful or you know an artist's motivations or something is more fuzzily outside of the boundaries of deliberating on the law. So I, yeah, it's, oof. Do you think that if Lynn Goldsmith is victorious at the Supreme Court level, uh, do you think we'll see a new era of artists getting more litigious? I think, well, in some cases I could see Yes. One of the things is in order to actually benefit from this, you have to be able to have the capacity to be litigious, right? You have to afford lawyer's fees in some capacity and have the time and money to be able to go through this process. So we could we could see it. I, I think the threat of it could mess around with some people's heads or I mean it it could threaten people from appropriating work by artists who are already established which some of the funnest and funniest work comes from playing off of the masters or playing off of the people who are popular um I guess I'm I'm just now realizing this I hadn't thought about it before but I'm wondering if it could hurt humor in art because so often humor is based on taking something you know and twisting it and a lot of times in art um that's from satirizing work that is popular for some reason right yeah i don't know i think it's a good point that you make that um 
not all artists are able to really run around these legal battles. I know a lot of the artists that we cover or we're familiar with or um, that are in Texas, they, they're they just not interested in doing that, period. Um, but I wonder if sort of clarifying and strengthening, um, emboldening the, like, boundaries around what is and isn't transformative will do the same thing to the creative class at any level. Um, probably... And this is sort of true anyways, people that are copyright holders, people that hold copyrights to highly valuable intellectual properties will just have more case law and more, you know, more words on the books to turn to whenever, you know, they start getting itchy about their stuff being used. Um, And I suppose that's not the scariest thing to me but it would be um it would be unfortunate and a little sad to think of getting on the other side of this lawsuit getting on the other side of the supreme court and their decision uh creating an environment where creatives feel even more nervous to sort of like think and say and speak Mm -hmm. um their minds yeah totally i i think that's the most dangerous thing and you know who knows if artists would actually be affected by this. We could very well be overthinking it and artists are just going to be like, I'm just going to make do what I've always done. I'm not going to think too hard about this. I don't know if, I don't know if the artists, you know, many of the artists in Texas are going to, uh, if they're going to think about this, if they're going to realize the full implications, it, they might, or they might not. I honestly don't know. I know there have been one or two people who have, reached out to us and been like, Hey, have you seen this thing going on? Because, well, actually I I take back what I just said. Artists in Texas, I mean, artists in Texas aren't stupid. Artists in Texas are in touch with what's going on nationally. And artists in Texas who are really focused on making good art knows that something like this could really affect them. Because even if, even if, uh, if it was constricted slightly, I don't know, it could using like a piece of a McDonald's bag in a collage where there's a logo present, could that be considered not transformative enough? Who knows? I mean, this brings me to uh, another satellite question, Brandon, which is like how many transformative use cases do you think that the Supreme Court turns down every year because Andy Warhol's not involved? That is an interesting point. I... I like, do you know what I mean? It's a question of like how many low profile appropriations disputes come up that we don't really see or hear about. Um, Mickey Mouse, McDonald's, the NASA logo, these, these things get used constantly and even more so ever since forums and Instagram came into existence. We see them all Mm -hmm. the time. Yeah, you're right. There could be, there could have been other things that haven't gotten as much press, Uh, that we just aren't as aware of or or that didn't get picked up in industry publications. Of course, it it could have just been a a blip of an article in the New York Times, but because this is Andy Warhol, it gets picked up by Artnet and Art News and the Art Newspaper and the Times and everywhere else. Um, I would be interested to know that. 
Andy Warhol is one of the best subjects to interrogate for legal purposes because his work is vast. There's so much of it. He did so much. He interacted with a lot of really important people. He produced their imagery, which then has gone on to be reprinted on merchandise and and textiles and other kinds of products. I mean, it's his relationship to kind of like media as identity. Um, it just is never ending. So I, I kind of don't envy being on uh, that dais trying to figure <laughs> these questions out. Um, I'm an art person. I don't really love black and white answers, not to every question, at least. <laughs> well, that's the other thing that if this photo isn't deemed or this piece by Warhol isn't deemed transformative enough, how many exact similar things has Warhol himself done? Like his is what was it? Fox going to sue because he used the Marilyn Monroe um, like headshot from her acting days is uh, it, it could open up things for Warhol and for the Warhol estate that we never thought would happen. That is like something to think about or, or it's sort of like declares how serious this is for the Andy Warhol foundation that they sued first. Um, there was no legal battle before that. Um, they kind of preemptively did it though, so that they could file. Yeah. Cause they knew this was coming. And, um, so if Lynn Goldsmith is victorious, then yeah. How many other people that are in the Andy Warhol web will say like, well, I wasn't super interested in litigating yet, but now I know that the law is on my side. So let's get those, let's get that copyright value transferred to me. And, um, and then what if, what if that's seriously troublesome for the Andy Warhol foundation? Yeah. What if this is Warhol's undoing? <laughs> That would be a really tangibly sad thing because it would ripple out even further. Other other artist estates or art foundations may also have to retreat their um, assistance, aid, and support of artists that are working in anything other than wholly original intellectual property um, because they don't want to get sued. And that's not fun. Um, so, yeah. And we're going to leave it there this week. Uh, we, like I said at the top, we encourage you to check out the related readings because some of those have probably explained this situation better than we ever could. Um, but still, it's interesting to think about. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We encourage you to uh, check out the site, see what's been published recently, check out our event listings and see what's happening in your region if you are located in Texas. And we'll be back in two weeks with another podcast. But until then, please go see some art. Go see some art. Thanks to this week's podcast sponsors, SFAI and Little Globe, which are two Santa Fe-based arts nonprofits committed to collaboration as a way to support artists, 
creative practitioners, and culture bearers. You can catch Santa Fe Stories from the Inside Out, which are Little Globe TV, LGTV episodes, and SFAI Tilt podcasts, which highlight the histories and experiences of the people who make Santa Fe a diverse, creative place to live and work. You can stay tuned for the upcoming episodes of LGTV on April 13th and of the Tilt podcast on April 22nd. You can learn more and check both of those out at littleglobe.org. That's L-I-T-T-L-E-G-L-O-B-E, littleglobe.org. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2022.